Good morning. After many years in the Gospel of Matthew, we are moving on. We're going to start a whole study of the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, as it's often known. So I hope you're with us. You can turn there to Acts chapter 1. And today I'm just going to kind of introduce it, okay? So if you were reading the New Testament through, from start to finish, and you made it through the four Gospels, then you would arrive at the fifth book in the New Testament, which, which starts with these words. The first account I composed, Theophilus, all about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And probably you would stop and think, Theophilus, Theophilus, I've seen that name somewhere before. And you might remember that this is the name that is in the introduction of the Gospel of Luke. So maybe you'll thumb back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel and look at the way that gospel begins, which is this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So there he is. There's Theophilus. And then you remember how Luke wanted Theophilus to know how his telling of the life of Jesus was the product of thorough research. Luke was a very careful historian of the greatest story ever told. And he was also a very careful historian of the early years of the Christian church. In other words, the book of Acts is volume two for Luke's writing. So yeah, I'm following Matthew's gospel with the book of Acts because it really follows Luke. It's Luke and Acts. But um, but that's okay because all the gospels end with the risen Christ and that's right where Luke picks up with volume two with the risen Christ. The beginning of the book of Acts. So let me read that to you. Acts chapter one, verse one. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So, we have the same author and he's telling the rest of the story. If you're an old person like me, you remember Paul Harvey? On the radio, he used to talk about the rest of the story. Well, Luke is telling the rest of the story about um, the early church following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke was part of Paul's ministry team, a, a very active group of men. And although Luke doesn't talk about himself by name at all, you can tell where he's present because the stories of Paul's work keep shifting back and forth from the third person to the first person. So for Luke people, they know that there's the famous we passages and the they passages. And there are three main we passages. So we is Paul and Luke and maybe other people, but it's at least those two doing something together. So um, those are times when Luke is recording his being with Paul. So I'm going to talk about those for a bit. 
The first one is right after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 16, it begins Paul's second missionary journey. So he'd already gone on one missionary journey. He came back. They had this big controversy. They had to have a settled, uh, settled out with a, a, a large council in Jerusalem. And Paul wants to go to other realms that he hasn't been to yet. So he's really wanting to go north, like to um, Bithynia in the northern part of what modern-day Turkey would be, and he can't go there. And he plans to go another direction, and he can't go there. And he ends up um, with what we call the Macedonian call. Paul is miraculously called to come across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. This is in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. I want to read that for you because it's important. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They couldn't go further east. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, that's north, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Troas is right on the edge of the Aegean Sea. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you see how the us, this is an us passage. So Luke is part of this group here. So Paul ends up at Troas, which is in modern-day Turkey, on the sea there. We've been there. There's not a whole lot left of it anymore, but there's a little harbor where there used to be a harbor in ancient times. And uh, Paul has this dream of this man begging him to come over. And from there, Luke goes with him. So this is the first we passage. So we don't know anything about Paul's, where he met Luke, and how they got to know each other, but Troas is where they are leaving together from. So that's his first indication of where he is. And um, the first town they come to is Philippi. A lot happens there. All of Acts chapter 16 is about Philippi. But when Paul and his team departs from Philippi, after all these events sort of happen there, the narrator goes from we to they. So the logical conclusion of that is that Luke is the one that stayed in, in Philippi. So Paul would tend to get a pretty large team of guys. They would go plant churches, and usually he'd leave one of them behind to grow that church, raise up godly leadership, elders and whatnot, and then they would communicate back and forth, and then um, eventually those people would be sent off in other tasks. But that's kind of how it worked. So Luke was a founding shepherd of the Philippian church, which is one explanation for why it was such a wonderful church. But um, So he was there. So Paul and Silas then go and travel on to Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, and then all the way down to Corinth. And Paul then stayed in Corinth for 18 months, it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 10. So he was there for a year and a half. Paul travels a little bit more, and then he ends up at Ephesus, another very significant city. And he stays there for over two years, building up that church, because it's such a strategic location that reaches all kinds of other uh, cities and uh, countryside area, very strategic place. So, so that's a they thing, him doing that. And the next time we come to a we section is in Acts chapter 20, when Paul returns from Greece to Philippi. 
You get a good picture of Paul's ministry team in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. It says, He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus, that means second. That's, what, that's when you name your kid second. Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So it's quite a diverse group here. These had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So, and then take note of verse 6. It says, we, now it's been four years since Luke and Paul were together as far as we know. So, we sailed from Philippi. So, Luke had been at Philippi apparently for that four years uh, building up that church. That's an awesome amount of time for him to be with them. So, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and we came to them at Troas within five days and there we stayed seven days. So Lucas with Paul when he gives his famous farewell speech to the Ephesian elders who meet him at Miletus, which is straight south from Ephesus. So when we talk about the book of Acts, what are we really dealing with here? Uh, the book of Acts is a history of the first 30 years of the Christian church, beginning with Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But it's not a general history, it's a, it's a purposeful history, narrowly focused. In fact, it follows an outline that was given by the Lord Jesus himself. It also follows a kind of a geographical outline, starting in Jerusalem and working east until it ends up in Rome. Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem and spends two years locked up in Caesarea, and the, the we and the us passages um, stop again. So Luke is with Paul. He leaves the Ephesian elders. He goes to Jerusalem. Paul gets arrested. Uh, he gets put away for two years, actually. And that gave Luke two years in Jerusalem, where he has lots of time to interview eyewitnesses for writing his gospel account and, and the early chapters of the book of Acts. So the we passages pick up way later in Acts chapter 27. Paul's been in prison all this time. So Paul appeals to Caesar to judge his case. That was his right as a Roman citizen. And Luke is going to go with him. So once they let him out, not free, but in custody, but he's out of a dungeon, and he's going to be taken to Rome. And that's a long trip. And he's allowed to bring people with him, friends and whatnot. So um, this is... Cases like this, as a citizen, he has a lot of extra privileges. So, Acts 27, 1, it says, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So Paul had two of his men on this trip with him. Luke is with Paul during the voyage, and then they shipwreck, and they end up crashing on the reefs near Malta. They, they get aboard, they, they get on the land there in Malta, the island. And so Luke is there with Paul there. So for all these amazing events in chapter 27 and chapter 28 of Luke's uh, work here, Luke was an eyewitness of that. So the whole last portion of the, the book, he's an eyewitness. And of course, the book ends with Paul still in Rome, awaiting trial. So Luke was an important member of the team. Paul mentions him in his letters. He talks about him in Philemon. He talks about him in Colossians. And in his final letter, 2 Timothy, his sort of um, farewell letter to the world, 
he mentions Luke in Second uh, Timothy chapter four verse nine. In fact, he's writing there. He tells Timothy, "Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me." Luke is with Paul to the very end. That's why they uh, they came out with a film a couple years ago called The Apostle, which is the story of the end of Paul's life. It's sort of a history of Paul, but it's mostly about the end of his life. And Luke is a big part of that film because he was there during that time. So that's an appropriate way to present those things. He was with Paul in his very last days. But his volume two, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, covers about 30 years, almost 30 years of church history. And he likely wrote the book of Acts around A.D. 62. kind of want to show you um, why that date is probably correct or something very close to that would be correct. And all these details kind of help us date the gospel of, I mean, um, the Acts of the Apostles. Everything seems to point for sure to a date before A.D. 64. Uh, Jerusalem was at war with Rome. That war started in A.D. 66. And... Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in A.D. 70. Jerusalem features very prominently in the book of Acts. It's a huge part of the story. But none of these major events, the war with Rome, the, the fall of Jerusalem, that none of that's mentioned. So that's a clue that is before A.D. 66, before the Roman war with Israel. The great persecution in Rome under the emperor Nero, probably one of the most famous events in uh, church history, early church history, um, and, and church history is quite clear that both Peter and Paul died during that Neronian persecution, as it's called. And Paul is very much alive at the end of the book of Acts. And this persecution had not even started yet. So that pushes it back even further before A.D. 64. Luke does mention in Acts 28 that Paul was there for two years. So the book of Acts was written two years after Paul got to Rome. And most scholars believe Paul arrived in Rome right around AD 60. So that would so two years there, and then Luke kind of records what's going on when he's finishing his writing, and Paul's still there under arrest. So that gives us a pretty strong indication that we're talking about AD 62 as a, a date for that. That's just under 30 years from the the, day, the days Jesus was crucified and risen and appeared to the apostles. Less than 30 years. I've been the pastor of this church more than 30 years, so he's covering an amount of time that's less than the, I've been a pastor at Acton Faith Bible Church. So it's not that long. So um, well within memory of many, many people. Okay, I mentioned earlier that Acts sort of follows a geographical outline. We'll talk about that more later, but in Acts chapter 1, verse Eight, um, Jesus says this to the apostles. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the book first covers these, uh, the first couple of chapters, chapter one really deals with Jesus' interaction with the apostles after the resurrection. It tells some of those events that happened there. And then it tells of his ascension, Jesus going back up into heaven. But then, starting about chapter 2, verse 5, through chapter 7, it's all about the apostles bearing witness, as Jesus commanded them to do, in Jerusalem. 
starts there. Acts chapter 8 through 12 talks about Judea and then Samaria, that it's moving out. The gospel's going further out. When you get to Acts chapter 13, all the way to the end, you get a good start on the gospel going to the remotest parts of the earth, certainly to the heart of the Roman Empire. And all of that is within 30 years of Christ's resurrection. So, we have a very well-sourced and often an eyewitness account of the early years of the church. Now, since this is sort of an introduction to the book today, I, I have to talk about how amazing the book of Acts really is. You know, these Bible books, they're not that long. Um, you know, this is a scroll, basically. But I mean, if you took the New Testament, it's, it's a paperback book about that thick. If you took just one of the Gospels, it's, it's pages. It's not even a book-sized thing. So um, Luke and Acts are about the same length. The, and the Gospels are, for, for that size, just packed with such incredible stuff. They're an amazing form of literature, an original form of literature. There's nothing like a gospel before the gospels. But there's so much packed into such small space. And they're brilliantly arranged, uh, the, these narratives of the life and the teaching of Jesus. And they're so rich, but compared to a modern book, they're really short. But they pack a lot and not very many pages. And as wonderful achievement as the gospels are, just as literature, the book of Acts is even more amazing. Because of its scope. I mean, Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel how carefully he used written sources and eyewitnesses so he could write his gospel. And it's a masterpiece. It really is. It's actually my favorite gospel, the Gospel of Luke. But the book of Acts is far more complex. Um, everything in the gospel happens in one place, basically, in and around the Holy Land. I mean, there's a little bit of walking around, but that's about it. The book of Acts includes events covering huge swaths of territory. Israel, then Syria, then Asia Minor, then Macedonia, then Greece, then Italy, and a couple of islands in there along the way as well. The breadth and the scope and the detail in the book of Acts is actually quite remarkable. Um, historians frequently have been impressed with Luke's knowledge of local customs all over the empire, titles of local rulers, geographical details, even nautical details when they're going through that whole ship thing, as well as personal details about the various individuals over vast areas. One of the coolest things about the book of Acts is how archaeology has confirmed Luke's excellent reporting over and over again. It used to be classical scholars would look at the book of Acts and say, wow, where did you get that? Where does that come from? Because they don't have any sources in literature that has come down, and not a whole lot has come down from those days in the first century. But from everything we have, there's just a lot of things Luke talks about that there was nothing about that in any of that literature. So they kind of question that. But archaeology is digging up actual things. And lots of things that archaeologists dig up are inscriptions. When Laura and I were touring through Asia Minor and Greece uh, on a tour with the Masters uh, University, everywhere you went, things were in writing and stone. But those things tended to get buried over time, you know, in these uh, ruins. But now they're all being excavated. So you're reading in stone things that were never available to classical scholars until the last hundred years or so. So um, some interesting examples here. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Luke calls the leaders in Thessalonica polytarchs. Polytarchs. That, that phrase was completely unknown from all the documents we have from antiquity. 
And historians used to wonder, where did he get that term? Why would Luke use such an odd term for the leaders there? But archaeology has uncovered 19 different inscriptions from Thessalonica, writing on stone, from about the 2nd century BC to the 2nd century AD, and that's exactly what they called the leaders there in Thessalonica, Polytarchs. We have tons of proof of that now. When they were shipwrecked on Malta in um, Acts chapter 28, Luke calls Publius, who's the chief of Malta, the, the ruler there, he calls him the first man of the island. And that title is completely unknown to any surviving documents from the classical world. And But inscriptions have been found in Greek and Latin, and they call the ruler of Malta in Greek protos, and in Latin primus, the first man. That's what he's called. So uh, Luke had that exactly right. In Acts chapter 19, Luke describes the Ephesian civic assembly meeting in that, that great theater in Ephesus. And inscriptions have been found in that theater that say that that's where the civic assembly met. Things like that. Acts chapter 14, verse 11. Remember when Paul and Barnabas visit Lystra and they, they heal this lame man and the locals start to think they're gods? And they think um, Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. Now, that's just kind of an interesting, odd thing. Well, it turns out from inscriptions that we have, we know that Hermes and Zeus were the primary gods that those people happened to worship in Lystra. That was sort of a center of thing. It all fits. In other words, everything we're digging up, everything we know. So Luke gets the details right. Everywhere Paul went and everywhere Luke went with Paul. Another remarkable thing about the book of Acts are the number of speeches and letters that are quoted. This little short book is just loaded with sermons and speeches and addresses to crowds and documents. Peter gives eight different talks, and, and they sound really authentic. They sound like a Galilean fisherman. Well, maybe not a fisherman necessarily, but somebody that's a little weak on his Greek, I guess is the way to say it. Luke is a very educated man. His Greek is fluent when he writes in his own voice. He reflects great classical learning in his style. So he didn't invent Peter's speeches. He's quoting him because Peter, Greek is clearly his second language, uh, and, and he's a Jew, so there's a lot of Hebraic influence in the way he speaks um, the Greek language, and it's not the best Greek in the world. And Luke records his speeches with all the roughness and the Hebraic influences you might expect from a guy like Peter who is not highly educated. He, and he doesn't, Luke doesn't polish the speeches or fix them. He just kind of presents them exactly as you would expect. Similarly, when Romans or Greeks are giving speeches in uh, the book of Acts, they sound like they know what they're talking about. Greek's like a, a, a strong language for them. So he captures all of that perfectly. So Peter has eight speeches. Stephen has all of chapter 7 as one great speech, a lengthy defense before he is martyred. James, in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, makes a suggestion, a little short speech, and that will be adopted. Paul has nine speeches or sermons in the book of Acts. This is all in 28 chapters. There are five non-Christian speeches. Gamaliel, the great rabbi, in Acts chapter 5, gives a little talk. Demetrius, the silversmith, who's a rabble-rouser and is trying to crush the apostolic ministry in Ephesus, Acts 19, he, he has a speech. The town clerk in Ephesus gives a speech after him. Tertullius, who's a lawyer, he gives a speech in Acts chapter 24. And Festus, the governor of Judea, gives a little speech in Acts chapter 25. So there's 
all of that recorded and included in this short book. There are also two letters, one from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to all of the Gentile churches, and another letter from a Roman commander in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 23. So, okay, enough of the stuff that makes the book wonderful to people like me. But what about the whole thing? What's the whole book really all about? Well, we talked about it as the spread of Christianity geographically, and the book of Acts is that. It's not comprehensive. It's purposeful. It's narrowly focused on the westward expansion of the faith. Jerusalem to Rome. That is the focus. Luke does not discuss the many other places the early church was reaching during that particular time. He doesn't even tell what happened to most of the apostles or where they went or what they did. Even though it's called Acts of the Apostles, it's really about Peter and Paul. I mean, those are the apostles it's mainly about. So the book is called Acts of the Apostles, but it's just about those two. Why? Why is that Luke's choice to focus on those two? Because there's a really important theological purpose to the book of Acts. Fundamentally, the book of Acts is a book of transition. Really important word, an important thought in your mind as we approach this book. For 2,000 years, God worked primarily through the descendants of Abraham. For 1,400 years, God worked primarily through a chosen nation-state, the people of Israel, descendants of Abraham. So it was all through Abraham until Jesus came. It was all through the Israelites as a nation until Jesus was rejected. So with the coming of Jesus, God's Son, this great change is taking place in God's redemptive plan for the world. Now that Messiah Jesus has accomplished redemption through the cross, it was time to go global and transnational. No state, but the spiritual body that's going to go out into the whole world. Israel was a stationary witness for God in the world. They did a pretty bad job of it too. But now is the time with the Holy Spirit's unction and uh, power to go, to go out into the world. You know, the covenant that God made with Abraham promised that in his descendants, quote, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, Israel just sitting there in the Middle East would never bless all the families of the earth. That was a start, but that wasn't the, that wasn't what it was about. So after Jesus came, it's time for that to happen to God starting to bless all the families of the earth. So this transition is taking place from national Israel to the transnational spiritual body of the church. And that's strongly hinted at in the Gospels, but it really comes to fruition in the book of Acts. So Acts explains several statements in the Gospels that are actually being played out in the real world. Um, I'll give you several examples. Jesus told the Samaritan woman and. John chapter 4, verse 21, he said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, they were in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. It's the way it's always been. But an hour is coming, Jesus says, and now is when the true worshipers will worship this Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he is in no way denying Israel's special calling. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. But something new is coming. Something much greater, much larger, much more inclusive. You get another hint in John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Hmm, who are those other sheep? Well, in the book of Acts, we're finding out. Maybe most clearly of all, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus directly confronts Israel's leadership in the temple, and he tells them the parable of the vineyard. I'm not going to go through all of that, but he, he concludes with a quote from Psalm 118. So these are the words of Jesus to the leaders of Israel. He says, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So that's from Psalm 118. Then Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Matthew 21, he makes it really clear. When you despise the king, you lose the kingdom. The whole question is why Luke is very focused on Peter and Paul and not the other apostles. The respective ministries of these two men show the transition that we're talking about from Israel, the nation state, as God's center of his redemptive plan, to this transnational body of the church, which is going to go into all the world and include the Gentiles. The book of Acts is pretty much Peter, but then it's Paul. Paul gets more space than Peter, though Peter is absolutely the hero of the first 15 chapters. And that's because Peter ministered to Israel primarily. And his story is one that confirms the national rejection of the gospel message as Peter presented it to his people. They rejected Jesus. They rejected what he did for them. Now, of course, many thousands of Jews created the first church and the first number of churches, actually. But the book of Acts chronicles the overall rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel. Much of the story of Paul, who is a minister to the Gentiles, the missionary to the Gentile world, is one of conflict mostly with the Jews. There are some Gentiles that give him some hard times, but the Jews are doggedly following him and trying to wreck what he's trying to accomplish for Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. So the book of Acts is telling that story, and it actually ends when you get to chapter 28. It's a strange thing how the very last thing that happens is a delegation of Jews comes to Paul in Rome while he's under house arrest, waiting for his um, trial before Caesar. So why would that be in there? Because it's completing this idea. Almost the very last words in the book of Acts are these words of Paul 
to the Jewish delegation that comes to see him. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. That's the church. The church is not Gentile, but it includes Gentiles as equals. And naturally, since the Jews, I, I, I mean, I don't know what the word figures were back then, but today Jews make up 0.002% of the world population. That's two people out of every thousand people in the world. So the church is going to be overwhelmingly Gentile just based on population statistics. If the gospel is going to go out into the whole world, there's going to be a lot more Gentiles than Jews in the church. But the Jews will always have a special place in God's program. And one day, Jesus will be the king with Jerusalem as his world capital. And he will gather his chosen people to himself. That will happen. But until he comes... In this age, Jew and Gentile are equal before God in the church through the blood of Jesus. And that's the story the book of Acts is telling. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes this incredible statement to the Gentiles that... Now, this is a Gentile church predominantly in Ephesus. And this is what he writes to them. This is Ephesians 2.11. Just kind of listen carefully. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh with human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That's such wonderful news. And it wasn't easy to have the Jewish church realize that that's the new plan. So a big part of the book of Acts is, is Israelite Christians, those that, that were Jews who followed Jesus and did love Jesus and started the church to welcome the Gentiles as equals. How did that ever happen? Well, the book of Acts tells that story. Very important theologically and practically, of course. So the biggest theological issue in the book of Acts is barely mentioned in the Gospels. And that's the question, what is the Gentiles' place 
in Christ's kingdom, in the church? Does a Gentile have to accept Moses and Jewish rituals to have standing with God? That's a huge question. So watch how it unfolds in this book. And look, look for some other themes as well. Let me just mention a couple. What is salvation? How does it come to us? What gospel did the apostles actually preach? Because we have their sermons here. What is the church? How does it function? What does it mean to be a Christian in relationship to the church of Jesus Christ? Is that an assumption or is that just something we can pick or choose or what? Do I have obligations to the church as a Christian? All of those things are going to be talked about in the book of Acts. So we'll be answering those questions as we go. I hope you enjoy taking this journey with me. It's going to be a long time, I think. Hopefully not as long as Matthew, but who knows? It's a wonderful book. It really is a very unique book in the New Testament. It occupies a place no other book does, telling the story of the early church. Plan to let Acts shape your thinking about the church and about missions and about uh, who we are in this world and what our purpose is. And hopefully that will challenge you. Let's pray. Our great God, we're so thankful for Luke, the man, Father, specially chosen by you. He's so um, self-effacing in all of his works, but uh, you blessed him so. And we just thank you for this special opportunity to learn through him about how you operated in a particular time in history, because that's the pattern for us today. And we ask for you to bless and guide us as we go through this together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Acts chapter 1.